Do I sound clear enough? Okay. And I'm fine? And I'm fine too? Okay. Okay, so we'll start. Hi everyone, this is the ETA podcast. I'm glad that you're listening and I'm glad that my two guests are here today. We want to listen to a sound file quickly that was aired last November by a Chinese scientist. Two beautiful little Chinese girls named Lulu and Lala came crying into the world as healthy as any other babies a few weeks ago. It's a scientist who told the world that he edited DNA of the embryos of twin girls and that the twin girls with the changed DNA that they were born. Gene surgery is another IVF advancement. I was shocked like everybody else. I remember double-checking the news to see if it was a hoax or it was real news and uh, called up a couple of people. I knew they were on their way to that um, conference, that uh, summit in Hong Kong. And everybody, like me, were thinking, that's not real. But then, of course, very quickly, we realized that it was very real. So it was the feeling of being shocked. It's another IVF advancement. For my first thought, I thought I'm looking at news maybe in 10 years. It's like um, just when I was in high school studying biology, I still remember there was a uh, uh, huge uh, research on how to understand our human DNA. That was 10 years ago. We didn't even know like which part corresponds to which part. But right now they are already saying that we can gene modify it. It's, it just seems so unreal for me. And of course, the, the right afterwards, I go to online, search a little bit. I understand this is really, really something irresponsible and it was completely crazy. So we'll be speaking about how scientists can be stopped of crossing ethical boundaries where ethical boundaries are, and also if or if not it was a coincidence that this happened in China for the first time. My name is Jennifer Kakshori. I'm the host of this ETH podcast. I'm glad to be here with two guests. Hello, everyone. My name is Han Tao, and I'm a joint PhD student of ETH and Disney Research. Uh, by training, I'm a computer scientist, uh, but right now my research concentrates on the interdisciplinary uh, between artificial intelligence and the psychology. And I'm Chinese, so of course, uh, this topic interests me a lot, and I'm very happy to talk with you two about um, Chinese science, CRISPR baby, and all the ethnics behind technology. My name is Effie Vienna. I'm a professor of bioethics here at ETH, and my work is focused on ethical implications of emerging technologies. I've done a lot of work on the ethics of genomics, um, how we apply them in the clinic, in research, and of course, the further use of genetic knowledge to applications like CRISPR are part of my research um, interest. In other areas, of course, I look at other types of technologies like data analytics and artificial intelligence, but it's interesting that these worlds are converging, and so the ethics of these emerging technologies are cross-cutting. So I'm very glad to be here talking about this. Just another quick question, Antao. On your website, you say that you're 10% Chinese. <laughs> What do you mean by that? <laughs> Um, I think I see myself. Um, so I left China when I was 22 years old. And how old are you now? 
And Ma, right now I'm 31. So during the past 10 years, I've been traveling different countries、uh, in North America, in Asia, then in Europe. Of course, I spend where I spend most of my time. I really see myself as a global citizen. I、uh, I do not want to use a very monotone、uh, definition to define myself. So meanwhile, I see myself as an explorer. I see myself as a what I see is a, like a combination of engineer and a little bit of artist. I really like the interdisciplinary research. I like. The combination of things. That's why I say I'm not just purely one thing. I'm a combination of a lot of a lot of things. And Effie, can you say in numbers how much of you is Swiss? <laughs> Oh right! So, <laughs> well, I just celebrated being in Switzerland for 19 years. Okay. So I think、uh, that cuts close to a big chunk of my life being here.、Um, so I, I feel, you know, again like like you, a global citizen. I grew up in Greece. I lived many years in the U.S. in England,、um, then in Switzerland. So I, I feel a bit of everything. And it's interesting, actually, having different cultural、um, stamps in you as we grow up in different places, get educated in different places, work in different places. That we absorb these different cultures, and when we think of those matters, those differences come to play in an interesting way. So、um, yes, we are global citizens. Yeah. So we spoke about what your first thoughts were when the news broke about the DNA that was changed, edited by the girls. Now, two months later, how, how do you see the whole thing? How big is it still? Did it get more quiet? Did you find a way of putting it into context to say it's this way or that way, or what does it do to you speaking about it now? So there was this uproar, right? Everybody it was in the news all the time. We have a, a project where looking at tweets and、uh, various topics, and we could see the spike on on our data、uh, during this time. So it became a topic for everybody. And at the time, the topic was: we're all shocked. What are we going to do with this? Something is really wrong. Those are the the message. I think after that. We kind of the dust. The dust seemed to have settled a little bit, and then it's interesting because the direction went towards. Okay, that was the wrong thing. Let's find a way to do this in the right way. Interestingly enough, in this conversation that ensued from the uproar, we didn't so much go back to the question: Should we be doing this anyway? It moved towards. Okay, now somebody pushed us to think how to do this the right way. So these are two different questions, and I think right now the the what I see more the emphasis is more towards should we how should we be doing it rather than should we do it anyway? Because the door is open in a sense and can't really be shut anymore. I I I I think there no really I think we could shut you know shut the door if if we wanted, but it's it's interesting that the scientific community jumped on. On that part, so the procedural part, so to speak, the、um, uh, the pathway to translate that. The other interesting development in the meantime was that big organizations have come forward and want to create global committees. To come up with statements. So, for example, the the World Health Organization just announced a、um, special council that aims consisted of. People and experts from different countries, and they want to come up with some form of statement or、um, policy as to how we're moving forward. And shouldn't this happen quickly so that it really doesn't happen again? Because, as far as I understood, and I'm really not from the field at, at all, it's not that difficult to use the CRISPR method if you're if you know what you're doing, if you know DNA, if you know things. 
I, it's not difficult uh, to do something. The question is what exactly you're doing. Mm. Because one of the things that you also mentioned earlier is that we still have limited understanding. So even if we make a change, let's say, because we think that change is the right change, we don't know what else we're doing mm -hmm. at the same time. And that is the major concern. So it depends what you mean by easy, easy to do something, but what you're doing is not contained to the something that you tried to do. And that means that these girls will, we don't know how they'll grow up. We don't know what will, what this we don't know. thing we will do to exactly. them. Exactly. And the main concern, the immediate concern was precisely that. We don't know what is going on and what is going to happen to these girls because we don't have enough knowledge to understand the um, other effects that such interventions have in the DNA of, of a human. So a big taboo was broken within the world of biology, of genetics. What kind of taboos are there in your field, Hantao, in uh, artificial intelligence? Because there I see a certain connection, tell me if I'm wrong, because we don't know in the long run what could happen in many years when something is set loose at a certain point. Mm -hmm. um, we're similar to what Professor Wayana just described. It's like um, the, the unknown consequences that we're going to face. Uh, the first thing immediately pop up in my head is the driverless cars. I mean, whenever there is a car that is there's no one behind the wheel on the street, if there is an, an accident, would the car make the right decision or not? Would the car try to kill less people but follow the rule or do the opposite? There are so many things behind algorithms we are trying to improve, yet we know very little, especially um, with this uh, current state of art machine learning, which is very different from the traditional uh, artificial in intelligence, which concentrated on the logic. Machine learning basically just learn real-world examples and try to mimic this. And this mimicking sometimes is highly unpredictable as well. And how do you discuss the ethics of machine learning or of, let's say, cars that drive without a driver, without a human? Yeah, um, I think just like um, any other biology techniques as well, we are exploring. And um, I believe that it is very important to have regulation and the rules on uh, any going on uh, applications in the real world. So things happen in the lab, I can I, I kind of see it. We can be a little bit bold and be a little bit brave if we can have everything under control in a lab environment, which there is little connection with a real society. But meanwhile, this this boundary, this line between research and laboratory and the real world become very, very blurred right now, especially what we see with Facebook and Google research. I mean, uh, right now, uh, the research and development uh, apartment is basically immediately linked to the business applications. Uh, that means any scientist's achievement can be seen by real people almost uh, maybe sometimes days after they have been just invented. So that's a big danger, the transparency of people who can look into labs. And I also want to speak about pressure, actually about the CRISPR baby and pressure. First, I need you to help me how to pronounce the name correctly of the scientist who edited the oh, yeah. DNA. <laughs> His name is He Jianghui. He Jianghui. And if yeah. I call him He, is yeah. that okay? Of course, of <laughs> okay. course, yeah. So what He did was... I mean, everyone is, is on the same page here, was uh, extraordinary and broke a taboo. But I went back and looked at where he comes from. And he comes from one of the poorest villages in China, the very poorest. And the only way to get out or to find a way out of 
the, let's call it misery, was by being brilliant in school and being a very good scholar and good at university. So there was a lot of pressure on him to succeed. There was a lot of pressure on being first, probably. He was in a very competitive environment. Was that, do you think that was something that made him do what he did, you know, wanting to be first, like wanting to be the first in a race, or you think it was something else? Uh, I think that definitely plays a role. Uh, I mean, yeah, um, yeah, all of what I'm doing is 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 really the um, the combination of what we have what we have experienced. For him, he has experienced this poor China and this uh, the Chinese education, which basically is uh, not comparable to the Western world. That means that uh, this is the first time maybe he experienced Chinese scientists can be forefront in this domain. But meanwhile, this is totally wrong. And I think another biggest motivation he has had was also the business uh, driven interests. Uh, as we know, he has uh, he has been involved with more than ten different companies in China, which focus on the genetic technologies. And with this kind of public exposure, it will bring a huge um, uh, business uh, influence on his companies or the, his business partners. You're nodding. Yes, I do because I agree. It's um, science is by nature competitive, right? Science is collaborative, but it's also competitive, and and there is a lot to be said for healthy competition, and we want to encourage it because that's how we humans move on and, and, and do great things. But I do think often we kind of lose our sight of the big picture, why we're competing, and rather make competition the, the the value. So, of course, it's great to be first, but then at what cost one or what kind of steps one takes in order to achieve that that being first. I think there are global system. It's not the Chinese system necessarily. I think our entire global system in the scientific world has a little bit of thinking to do. How do we pursue and how do we push our scientists to do the next thing, for what reasons and at what under what conditions and at what cost? There, we all need to think more more carefully. I believe. The other question, of course, at the same time, we are thinking everywhere that science and innovation is going to translate into business, and that's something again that I think it's not a bad thing. We encourage that. We want healthy economies. We want good businesses, but we have so many examples where that pathway has also created problems because there are certain things that could be translated and could become products and people can buy and it's not a big deal. And then there are certain things that are very crucial to our well-being and to who we are, including those kinds of services. I mean, creating a human life, it is not trivial and it cannot be treated the same way business-wise as I you know, produce a pair of shoes. And it's true that we have set the standards and we have acknowledged the difference. Different research you do that to translate into, a f you know, applications that produce shoes or bags or whatever, and different rules and standards for doing experiments that then we apply on humans, like drugs, like interventions, or use to produce humans in that case. So, the, yes, we, it's not news. We have thought about this. But again, this case reminds us of the difference between the domains and the problems that can come when there is this push from monetizing technology and scientific knowledge. 
I do. Um, you both said that it's a global thing. The competitiveness is not necessarily bound to a certain country, a certain culture. But I read a few articles that were published in the U.S. by Chinese-American people who said it's not a coincidence that this happened in China and that there is a big divide in ethical questions in China and in the West. How do you reply to that? Mm. Um, I think in that way, we should really look at what the roles of Chinese scientists in this world are. And I think one one good metaphor we can use is really Chinese scientists are still students in front of the whole Western world and the global world. The, mo the, the modern Chinese education system wasn't established uh, just slightly more than 100 years ago. And the best Chinese university in China, the Tsinghua University, was actually sponsored by Americans. So as you can imagine, all this modern education system, the, the methodology of doing research, everything Chinese has been doing right now, it was learned from the Western world. That's why I think, um, first of all, we are still learning. There are so many things Chinese scientists need to learn to cope with, need to learn to uh, to follow. Uh, and meanwhile, um, uh, as right now, uh, China has so many uh, investment in research development well because uh, politicians and the Chinese general publics, they, they regard this as the engine of the, uh, the country's economy boost. So uh, with so much uh, investment into that, sometimes maybe the, the learning and the regulations uh, can be a little bit behind. Uh, it's a bad thing that uh, for this specific case, this CRISPR baby, actually the regulation was established already more than 18 years in China. So uh, what He did was completely against the law. And uh, some rumors said he will face criminal charges even. So uh, at the same time, I see it was more like um, a general education uh, awareness. So the Chinese students and uh, to extend to the whole world, uh, all the researchers, we should know and understand um, the power that we are having right now. It is sometimes very dangerous and we need to learn to how to deal with that. Effie, I know that you were in touch with some Chinese ethicists. How did that change your view on the whole topic of ethics and of East and West? Well, the Chinese bioethicists um, on the topic of CRISPR, they have condemned it the same way that um, you just explained and the same very similar way that many of us in the West reacted. And they've published a paper also that they explicitly and clearly put out their, their views. So they feel there was regulation that was not adhered to, there was a um, ethical standards that they've been in place. I, I think also the Chinese bioethicists complained a little bit about stereotyping. Because it's in China, it ought to be unethical. And I think there we again have to be a little careful. Subscribing to stereotyping is, um, is not, is not fruitful. It's not going to get us very far. It's not ethical either. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not right. First of all, we in the West, um, and I speak as a, a very Western educated and culturally uh, embedded person here, um, until very recently, we have had done a lot of unethical things in research. So we are not innocent, right? And that's not 100 years ago. That's up to maybe 20 or 15 years ago. Strict regulation kicked in, a lot of education kicked in to bring everybody up to speed as to what are ethical standards. So we lived with this for a long time. And therefore, we have probably more efficient methods in implementing the guidelines or the regulation than others who, as you said, um, they're newer 
in, in, in this game. So we should be mindful of the fact that it takes time to learn how to deal with these regulations. The other thing we have to pay attention to, in his example, we know now that there were several U.S. scientists involved with him. One is allegedly last author of the paper he submitted. Last author means he's the guarantor of the paper. He's the senior author on the paper, and he is the junior author because he's the, the coordinating author. He's the first. So that is puzzling to me. Because that's our standards then. So how come we um, then we're so quick to say the Chinese will do it their own way? China has a different culture to the Western uh, world. And in the global community, we aim to be pluralistic. So yes, we'll maybe have differences, but we'll have similarities and we'll learn from them. They'll learn from us. So it's not that, you know, one has it right, one has it wrong. And you can say that very quickly. So all of this in the public discourse that came out, it was it was very simplified, and I think it, it doesn't do us any any good to think about our uh, colleagues this way. And the last point here is, science is a global endeavor. We don't do science here in Zurich and some other science in in China and you know in, in isolation. We build on each other, and and that's how we move on. So I think the scientific standard ought to be. A global standard, and in many fields, we're moving into into this direction. So, I think I would have liked to see more of these issues into the discourse rather than the bad guys versus the good guys. But speaking about the future, what did we learn from this example, and what will this, you know, what will it bring out? Speaking about ethics and crossing ethical boundaries. I think just just where like the um, the education that I think Professor Wayan is very familiar with, all the medicine school students, whenever they get the degree, the first thing they need to do is also to have a, a lot of really education about what you can do and what you cannot do. And I think this kind of education is a little bit missing in uh, traditional engineer domains, including like bioinformatics and even uh, computer science students. And um, I believe this is uh, something that is uh, irreplaceable and just by learning the technology is not enough for you to understand the, the consequences behind them and this is uh, uh, every researcher's and every professor's responsibility to tell the students right, what you can do and what you cannot so I'm a little bit pessimistic about the reg regulations in that way it's just like um, the CRISPR technology they are easily accessible and they are cheap so there is there's no way we can just add a monitor camera in every lab to monitor them more 24 hours per day to see what they're doing and what they're not. We need to build this self-awareness, self-discipline and let the scientists to be responsible by themselves. Especially if business and science are moving closer and closer, how can you prevent business people from corrupting or trying to corrupt scientists of doing things like CRISPR or in the field of artificial intelligence? Well, exactly. I think those standards... Of, of ethics like the ones we're talking about here are, should not be confined to the research lab. I mean, whether you should be, it's the reason, a responsible thing to do something or not should extend to any activity. And that includes the business activity. 
and and here at least in 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 genetics in medicine we have um across that bridge and we say certain things are allowed or not allowed anywhere whether you are in 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 the clinic where in the business so because the consequences those things could have are anyway negative no matter where you are in which building or in which in which um sector so i think there we need to make sure that what is allowed uh, or not is clear and it applies to both. The other thing I still believe very much that rules and laws have a certain uh, power and I believe in them and 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 I think we need them. But you can never uh, you know prohibit something to the extent that it's never going to happen. What the only thing that can do that is if each person learns of their responsibilities and is also in a culture that a scientific culture that allows them to live up to those responsibilities. And I think this is for me it's a long-term planning. It's not the magic bullet that right now we fix it, but it is the way I think we should educate our scientists and create the scientific culture so we can achieve that when something in, it happens doesn't shock us or it shocks us in a positive way because something it was very successful. Just one sad note to what the professor just said, I think is, yes, sometimes that's what the law is for. We need to pay the price and we need to make people to see that, what kind of consequences you are faced. Uh, so to my knowledge, he, uh, the Chinese scientist right now is already fired by his university mm-hmm. in China. And I believe his career as a scientist in China is completely over right now. And I think this would set a good example for any followers who try to mimic his activity and this kind of uh, um yeah, irresponsible uh, actions. But let's scientific. say there might be someone really crazy, very rich. I mean, there are some crazy rich people in this world that will say, okay, he lost his job, but I'll take him. I'll buy an island, build up a little <laughs> lab and have him enhance my genes or the genes of my children or do something. What What about that? How, how can we handle that? I mean, I think it's totally unethical. That's clear, but... I, I don't think we can prevent that from happening. I think we can have any kind of law. Um, I, do, I don't think this is possible to say we, you know, we eliminate any possibility. And um, if if there was a way to do that, then it would be very bad for a lot of other things. So I wouldn't I wouldn't promote that idea. I think I want to believe that this could be, if there were to be a case, it would be a very isolated case, and it wouldn't have any impact at the large scale. Again. For me, the question is, how can we prevent people from thinking that this is a good idea to do something crazy, something that the scientific community has not established? And very importantly, something that we as a society haven't decided is what we want to do. Because the scientists may have an idea. When it has so such serious implications for society, then we should decide together whether we want to go this way or not. The same with artificial intelligence. It's not just about, you know, putting somebody on an island with a few mm-hmm. uh, pipettes and, and, and genes. You could put somebody on an island with some fabulous technology and mm-hmm. they could produce something even worse than, much worse than one or two people who maybe are sick or maybe have particular disorders. So the idea is, again, not to live with the fear of the island that's producing something crazy, but um, to see how all of the, most of us, all of us, are able to de- develop standards and live up to, this, to these standards. Here, again, we're not, we have some way to go. 
I think this virtual island that you just described is very similar to anything we have access to the real world that is both um, beneficial and dangerous. For example, a knife. One can use a knife to cook the most delicious meals for their, for their whole family, but one can use a knife to hurt the others. And uh, But it shouldn't stop us from providing and inventing good knives because there are so many things we can do with that. We just need to trust the humankind a little bit that there are only very small percentage of people will do bad things with that. Does the ATL do anything differently regarding standards now since this CRISPR case last November? Do you know about that? No, I, I don't think institutions do things differently. Um, in Switzerland, experimenting with embryos is anyway prohibited by law. So in our labs, these things are not are not happening. ETH also, like other international universities, we're all looking at what's going on, what's the next standard, how we're going to make sure that we are having this culture, this ethical culture of research. And that is not a new thing for us. We're also trying to make sure that our students are, have access to guidance, um, teaching, so they learn and early on how many of those things are are um, allowed or for what reasons. And what was it, it's good to see here is we um, the response we have from the students is, is quite fascinating. Uh, students want to talk about those things. They want to learn what's going on. What are the arguments? Why should they think what they're thinking? Why is it bad to do g gene editing? So there's still discussions on that topic between students and the We professors. do have those discussions. I mean, I'm a little biased because my group works on this area. So people come to us and we have these exchanges, conversations. But I, I think in other departments as well, and those in the lab who are actually uh, on the technology are, are part of the conversation very much so. Take, for example, my research domain. I uh, What I do involve a lot of uh, real-person uh, experiment. So we invite people to come to our lab and conduct uh, experiment on them. And of course, the first thing we need to do before we do any of these things is to provide a consent form. So we need to, that's the first thing my professor told me to do is you need to list all the consequences, all the potential risks to the participants before you do anything to them. And this is the part of education to let the, us to know um, uh, all this form all these regulations, there is a reason behind them and we should follow these rules. Yeah. And we have other, obviously, institutional processes like a lot of um, most research that carries certain risks is reviewed by an, eth an ethics review board, right. includes the requirements for consent. All of that sometimes might sound like a nuisance. Oh, I got to fill out forms and I got to do those things. But what's behind that is that you need a few other people to look at what you're doing. Maybe there's something that you did not intentionally want to go wrong or to do to, to oversee, but you have those standards checked. And these processes we've had uh, for some time, they are stricter when it comes to biomedical research or clinical research that has to do with, with humans. Um, but uh, there are processes that, again, had the purpose of preventing some of the wrongs. Mm -hmm. But again, the reason we put them in place is because we have a bad history. <laughs> There was lots of these um, things that happened without people knowing that been experimented upon with um, a lot of risk taken. And so over time, we learned that we should avoid that and put processes in place that, that prevent it from happening. So I'm an extremely passionate person about literature. I read a lot. I love to read. I love stories. I love 
seeing where it takes people to, where a story takes people to. And following this CRISPR story reminded me of literature just that, unfortunately, it's real. It's a real thriller. But that's, I, I, I wonder also what will happen with the next bit of the story, what we will think in 10 years or maybe in 30 years. Is there a possibility that in 30 years we will say, we will look back and say there, this is much ado about nothing and people will be gene editing right and left or is that impossible? Well, um, predicting the future is <laughs> certainly not my skill, but um, I think we hope to be able to look back and say, no matter what's happening when we're in the 30 years moment, um, to look back and say we did it the right way. I think putting people at risk that you don't know what risk that is, is something I I don't think we should be proud of, even even if things work out. And, and the reason is because we don't need us to get into a habit of putting human beings at risks of that kind. I think this is about creating the right scientific culture, and the right scientific culture has to respect humans. That's the kind of culture. We want science to do things for us humans, so we have a better life. We are healthy. We feel good. We um, flourish. Essential to this culture is that we're respected for being for being human. So anything that's in the future, even if we're all looking much better and, and be stronger and smarter, it has to be done in a respectful way for, for humans. And I think that's um, what I want, hopefully, to see. And meanwhile, I'm still very eager to see what this will lead us to. And I see it's the very similar thing, but of course, in ethical level different, is the GMO, the gene-modified uh, crops. I mean, also 20 years ago, people see it as the most devil thing ever. But meanwhile, it helps the developing countries, including my country, China, to be able to feed so many uh, poor populations where, where with very little um, uh, agricultural resources. I'm still very optimistic about what technologies can lead us to. Thank you very much for being here, Effie Vajina and Hantao Zhao. Thank you for listening. I produced this podcast together with Tis Wachter's Audio Story Lab. My name is Jennifer Kakshuri. Music, mastering and sound design by Luki Fretz. And by the way, you can listen to earlier podcasts that we produced. We produced four episodes on entrepreneurship at ETH on all levels, from student projects to spin-offs. Don't miss the next episode and subscribe to our podcast so that you get our podcast on your device wherever you are and wherever you go. Thank you.